0: This week, J. Crew files for Chapter 11 in Virginia, Neiman Marcus files for Chapter 11 in Texas. More on all this, and as always, updates from Puerto Rico. Welcome to the Week in Reorg.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Reorg podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in high yield, distressed debt, and bankruptcy. I'm Connor Skelding.
0: And I'm Raksha Manjana. Later, the team will discuss navigating Chapter 11 with only limited financing options, Wishing all the mothers out there a very happy Mother's Day. It's Sunday,
1: May 10th. New York City-based specialty clothing retailer J.Crew and several affiliates on Monday filed for Chapter 11 in the Eastern District of Virginia, agreeing to a transaction support agreement with lenders holding approximately 71% of its term loan and approximately 78% of IPCo notes, as well as its sponsors, through which the company would convert $1.65 billion of debt into equity. The debtors' pre-petition ABL lenders were not party to the TSA as of the petition date. As part of the TSA, the company's Madewell business will remain part of J.Crew Group, Inc., and Libby Waddle will continue as Madewell's CEO. The company has secured commitments for a dip facility of $400 million and committed exit financing provided by existing lenders Anchorage Capital Group, LLC, GSO Capital Partners, and Davidson Kempner Capital Management, LP, among others. The debtors sought authorization to access $110 million in an initial draw on the DIP. The DIP financing consists of 100% new money without any roll-up of pre-petition secured debt, and all liens granted on account of the DIP are junior to existing liens on the ABL collateral. Although the ABL lenders had not consented to the use of cash collateral as of the petition date, they reached an agreement in advance of the first-day hearing. The debtors attributed their bankruptcy to the COVID-19 pandemic, which forced the closure of all retail stores and also caused, quote, a steep decrease in net sales across their business lines and rendered the debtors foreign vendors unable to operate, produce, or ship merchandise. COO Michael J. Nicholson, in his first day declaration, said that the debtors expect a loss of almost $900 million in sales resulting from store closures. As part of their second-day relief, the debtors are requesting authority to suspend their rent payment obligations under their unexpired real property leases for 60 days from the petition date through July 6th. Under the TSA, term loan lenders will receive 75.6% of new equity, with IP co-holders obtaining 23.5%, and allocations representing percentages of new common shares remaining after distributing new common shares for the backstop premium, the new equity allocation, and any other new common shares distributed pursuant to the plan. These equity allocations would be subject to dilution by the new warrants and a post-emergence management incentive plan. As consideration for the undertakings in the TSA, lenders of the dip and exit term loans would receive 15% of the common equity of the reorganized company and warrants to acquire additional new common shares after the plan's effective date. At the first day hearing on Tuesday, Judge Keith Phillips granted the debtor's dip motion over the objections lodged by the U.S. trustee and Eaton Vance, a pre-petition term lender that did not participate in dip negotiations.
0: Dallas-based luxury retailer Neiman Marcus, as expected, filed for Chapter 11 on Thursday in the Southern District of Texas with a restructuring support agreement that includes commitments from holders of over 77% of the debtors' extended term loans, over 99% of the second lien notes, and over 69% of the third lien notes, to, quote, equitize their debt and backstop the full amount of a proposed $675 million new money debtor-in-possession financing facility and a $750 million committed exit financing facility. The debtors made clear in a press release that European luxury retailer My Teresa, quote, is not a part of the Chapter 11 proceedings and will continue to operate independently. Through the proposed restructuring, the debtors seek to eliminate approximately $4 billion of their existing $5.145 billion debt load. And upon emergence from bankruptcy, the reorganized entity's planned capital structure is, quote, anticipated to be long-dated with no near-term maturities, according to Neiman's press release. Under the plan contemplated by the RSA and through a co- complex collateral priority scheme, 2019 term loan claims are receiving 87.5% of new equity. 2013 term loan claims are receiving 0.2%. 2028 debenture claims are receiving 2.8%. Second, lien notes are receiving 1% and warrants 25%. And third, lien notes are receiving 8.5%, all subject to significant dilution. The debtors seek to emerge from Chapter 11 in, quote, early fall 2020, according to the release. The company attributed the bankruptcy filing to, quote, the same macro trends that have crippled many apparel and retail companies, including a general trend from brick-and-mortar to online retail channels and a shift in consumer demographics, in addition to a, quote, significant decline in store traffic and related consumer spending, as well as numerous operational challenges as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. The temporary closure of all of the debtor's brick-and-mortar locations on March 18th resulted in an immediate reduction in cash flow of 65% to 75%, according to the debtor's first-day declaration. On March 17th, the company announced that it had decided to temporarily close all Neiman Marcus, Bergdorf Goodman, and Last Call stores in light of the coronavirus pandemic. Now, the temporary closures of some of these stores have been extended through May 31st. A company says it will continue to assess store closure decisions and will reopen stores as it is safe to do so based on the status of the COVID-19 pandemic, adding that the Chapter 11 process will not affect the timing of the store reopenings.
1: Turning to the island of Puerto Rico, as always, the administration of Governor Wanda Vasquez presented a revised draft Commonwealth Fiscal Plan to the Promesa Oversight Board on Sunday that reflects fallout from the COVID-19 crisis, stating that it, quote, strongly believes that the Oversight Board will have to reconsider its proposed Commonwealth plan of adjustment. The revised document notes that the administration's opposition to the plan of adjustment was centered on the treatment of pensioners compared with bondholders. Quote, because of the substantial negative effects COVID-19 will have on the economic assumptions used on the May 9, 2019 certified fiscal plan, particularly with respect to debt sustainability and the economic impact of certain cost-cutting measures, the proposed plan of adjustment is likely not feasible in our post COVID 19 reality. As such, the proposed plan of adjustment must and should be subject to reevaluation and a potentially substantial revision. The revised draft reads The revised draft, which replaced an earlier version submitted in late February, maintains core elements of the February draft, including a $1 billion disaster relief working capital fund and a $146 million pay raise for Commonwealth employees. Also in Puerto Rico's Title III cases, the defendants in the Law 29 adversary proceeding filed an informative motion Wednesday evening informing the Title III court that CRIM has quote, agreed to accept the third option outlined by the Promiso Oversight Board in its April 28th proposal for distributing the $132 million municipal transfer from the Commonwealth to the municipalities contemplated under the current certified fiscal plan, which will be reversed to offset the municipality's obligation, leaving approximately $66 million to be repaid remaining. In other matters related to the cases, Judge Laura Taylor Swain on Thursday entered an order granting the Promiso Oversight Board and the Puerto Rico Fiscal Agency and Financial Authorities motion seeking to adjourn the preliminary hearing on the revenue bond lift-stay motions and for leave to file sir-replies to each of the revenue bond replies. The order was granted over the objection of the monoline insurers. Also on Thursday, the Promesa Oversight Board stated in a letter to Vasquez and Commonwealth legislative leaders that it has agreed to extend until May 20th the deadline for submission of the Puerto Rico Electric Power Authority's proposed updated fiscal plan.
0: Other top stories this past week were Judge Drain approves Windstream settlement with Unity, overruling UCC and unsecured no trustees' objections. Vermont Bankruptcy Court latest to grant TRO against SBA over debtor eligibility in PPP loan application process. Cyrus Capital Partners tells Intelsat board it is confounded by speculation of a Chapter 11 filing by Jackson, outlines three measures for board to undertake. And Travelport working with Kirkland and Ellis to prepare for potential liquidity needs. Covenant amendment if close of ENET sale delayed. Now here is Jim Holloway from Houston with the week ahead.
2: Well, thank you, Raksha. Good morning, everyone. This looks to be the last week of what has been a dismal first quarter earnings season. I think the best thing you can say about it is that the second quarter is probably going to be worse. And for more complete and comprehensive accounting of who's reporting this week, please see our weekly forward, which is released bright and early on Mondays. Here's some highlights. Monday, May 11th, among those reporting are Contura, Console, Callan, Cleveland, Cumulus, and Caesars. And that's just one letter of the alphabet. There's plenty more. And Tuesday, May 12th, we have Tidewater Advantage. Also, some legal stuff such as oral arguments in the make and post petition interest dispute and in ultra petroleum. Unity Adversary Trial and Windstream and a sale hearing related to Dura Automotive. Dura, of course, being a portfolio company of Zohar. And I just took a glance at Ms. Lynn Tilton's Twitter feed and she's quoting George W. Bush, who I'd like to point out is from Connecticut. Quote, Mr. Bush, let us remember that empathy and simple kindness are essential, powerful tools of national recovery. End quote. That's from George W. Bush, who is from Connecticut and went to Yale. Bula, bula, bula. Anyway, Wednesday, May 13th, DS hearing in Murray Energy. Finally, not a lot on the earnings front, but we do have Key Energy, Navios Partners and Advance. Advance, I guess that's how you pronounce it. Thursday, May 14th, on the billable hours front, there's hearings in Madoff. The ghost of collapse is past, I guess. Also, PES, Sears, Pier 1, Foresight, and Murray Energy. And let's not forget there are grace period expirations in JCPenney and Alta Petroleum, and there are earnings from Monotronics. Friday, May 15th, it's back to the land of what have you done for me lately, by which I mean coupons are due from California Resources, Ultra again, Denbury, Extraction Oil and Gas, SM Energy, and Valaris. And that's all schedule-wise, and last but not least, this week's Sir Humphrey Davenport Award for the most significant contribution to jurisprudence goes to paragraph 9 in docket number 1770 in the Windstream cases, and I quote... The standstill provision in the letter of intent protects Unity from any activist efforts that Elliott might otherwise consider taking as a major shareholder in the company. This is a unique protection from Elliott that the debtors could never offer to Unity. Unity knows that Elliott is Windstream's largest creditor and would be likely to receive a significant portion of any Unity stock distributed under a plan of reorganization. If, instead of entering into the letter of intent, Unity had given unrestricted stock to the debtor's estates for distribution to its creditors, Unity would not have had the protections of the standstill protection against Elliott, a noted activist investor. In quote. I'm going to leave you all with that. Thanks for listening and stay comfortable.
0: Now here's Sean Daly and Mark Fisher. On navigating Chapter 11 with limited financing options.
2: So, I
3: want to build on um, some things that we discussed last week with Carol Denniston in in this uh, section. Last week, we spoke with Carol Dennison, uh, a partner at Squire, Pat, and Boggs, uh, discussing liquidity and what companies and municipalities can do pre and post petition to maximize value. I'm stealing Sean Daly, our legal analyst, uh, from his normal segment uh, to help me go through uh, some companies that, or what, what debtors do, uh, really it's an issue that we're going to explore, what debtors do when there really isn't much uh, liquidity or any liquidity at all. Uh, so, you know, we've seen a number of financial institutions pull back from lending to distressed companies, particularly in some of the hardest hit industries. Um, and want to discuss with with Sean, uh, let's talk, talk about some of their options. But first, um, Sean, if you could, you know, one one question I have is I thought there was some, you know, liquidity, this government program certainly. Are companies able to take advantage of debtors, able to take advantage of some of these?
4: Stressed companies, uh, some of whom, uh, Prior to and then in Chapter 11 have definitely been trying to take advantage of certain of the, uh, the new government programs, various funding under the CARES Act, uh, but they haven't all been successful. Uh, as one example from uh, uh, the battered airline industry, Raven Air, which uh, flies routes in Alaska, uh, wound up filing a liquidating plan because uh, insufficient CARES Act funding was available and what's interesting is they they sort of noted throughout their cases that they were seeking CARES Act funding um, through some of the, the mechanisms available for airlines. However, and I, I think this is a, you know, I think what we're starting to see is there are a decent number of middle market or smaller filings, but maybe not the, the mega filings yet. Um, Raven talks about facing, you know, an in, in issue that... Um, an available seat miles formula for air carriers that they said, you know, oh, this favors larger carriers, um, would result in Raven only getting, I think they said, approximately five million dollars relative to the seventy-five million that they had requested through um, one program. I think what's interesting from bankruptcy perspective, there's been surprisingly a, a ton of litigation around the Paycheck Protection Program. Loans uh, through the, the Small business, business Administration. There was sort of limited guidance when uh, this program first came into place in late March, saying uh, that if you are a debtor, you can't apply. But there was a little bit of wiggle room, and we saw several companies that subsequently filed for Chapter 11 that had applied pre-petition, uh, some of whom had obtained funds before they filed and some of whom had not subsequent guidance from the Treasury said that if you uh, you know if you apply and then file and then receive funds that you have to return those funds um, but there's there's been a lot of litigation actually against the uh, the SBA itself from debtors uh, saying you know you you can't stop us from applying even if you know we can't necessarily uh, force anyone to lend to us you you cannot preclude us from trying to uh, take advantage of this program which you know if, if you think that's your only potential source of liquidity then yeah if, of course you uh, you know you want to uh, you want to argue that um, CARES Act funding has come up in a slightly different context in the quorum health case where uh, an objecting equity holder has criticized the debtors on the valuation front saying, oh, you haven't fully availed yourselves of uh, the various federal funding opportunities. So a, a slightly different twist.
3: Great. So um, that was really helpful. Why don't let, let's move on to some industries now. Uh, you know, you talked about companies not having uh, cash or really uh, people that will lend money uh, to these debtors pulling back. Uh, what are some of the, uh, the industries? I know we've spoken about retail. Talk, uh, walk us through what happens when certain retailers don't have access to money.
4: They effectively try to press pause on their cases, cut down to the absolute bare minimum of expenses. We've now seeing a number of debtors file these uh, mothball motions, I guess, as the, as the term is picked up. Um, seek relief to, to do so under various methods through the, the bankruptcy code, uh, Section 305, suspension of a case, and then the, the much more broad sort of equitable powers of Section 105, uh, Models, Sporting Goods, uh, Pier 1, Craftworks, uh, restaurant chains, I think were the first three. There have been others since. True Religion uh, maybe is the, the latest example. What's interesting for retailers is with stores shut by, uh, you know, mandatory orders in, in various jurisdictions, uh, a, a retailer can't even conduct a going-out-of-business sale. So Models sought to suspend their cases even though they had filed for Chapter 11 with the idea that they would just conduct, uh, you know, going-out-of-business sales and, and liquidate um Pier one a little bit different. they had uh, a sale slash plan toggle plan. Um, no one sort of hit the hit the bid on the sale option yet the uh, the creditors that were supposedly going to support a, a balance sheet restructuring are are now just sort of toggling in place um, well well, uh, you know the, the debtor's ability to even reopen is in question, uh, and so what this has come down to, getting back to the idea that you're you're trying to you know just cut down to the absolute minimum of expenses. Um, primarily, uh, re- real estate issues are coming up. Landlords are arguing that if you permit a debtor to suspend rent payments, uh, that's akin to Financing the cases on their backs and pushing disputes out. There, there have been several, like Craftworks, sought procedures to essentially defer all non, you know, essential matters until a, a later time. If you push these disputes out to claims reconciliation later in time, landlords are saying, you know, that exposes us to the risk of administrative solvency, which insolvency, excuse me, uh, which if you follow retail bankruptcies, is of course always a always a possibility. Um, there's one particular section of the bankruptcy code, Section 365, and then subsection D3, uh, that has come up in several different instances recently. It provides that the debtor shall quote timely perform all obligations under um, unexpired. Uh, non-residential real property leases, uh, so that accounts that for store leases uh, until such lease is assumed or rejected. Uh, and then there's a, a small carve-out from that. In Forever 21, an asset purchaser sought to reject leases, yet um, sort of retained the benefit of not going in to recover their property until you know, the stores were able to be opened again, uh, Judge Mary Walrath in Delaware said, "No, you—that's—that's that's inconsistent. You can't uh, essentially try to keep one benefit of the lease, but put the put the burdens, um, certain other burdens on the landlords under this uh, this subsection." Uh, similarly, just this week in the True Religion cases, Judge Christopher Sanchi, also in Delaware, uh, similarly found that lease rejection could not be done, uh, to a prior point in time as the debtors had requested, uh, because you, you can't, if you can't remove your property from the premises, then, uh, you, you sh- cannot sort of, you know, just reject at that time. Uh, although Judge Sanchi did note that, although this has sort of been a, a matter of settled law in Delaware for a while, the, uh, COVID pandemic, of course, has, um, you know, kind of, kind of brought this back to the fore, uh, saying specifically that the way he was looking at it, who should bear the, uh, the burden of loss from government action, uh, is that um, it should be the party in possession of the property. Uh, the Pier 1 debtors, so to, again, kind of focus on this timely requirement, uh, the Pier 1 debtors proposed to make catch-up payments of April and May rent starting in July And that was sufficient for a judge in the Eastern District of Virginia to approve that relief. Uh, The judge concluded that, given the circumstances, that... um, you know the the planned payment of catch up rent would satisfy the uh, the timely
3: requirement. Thanks, Sean. So I'm going to actually talk some about um, energy companies, uh, which have also it's been another industry where we've seen a uh, pullback in um, in lending. Really, any um, any money going to debtors or um, you know severely stressed um, entities. And uh, this is actually sort of, you know, you could say actually ground zero for um, bankruptcy plans changing. You and I had spoken a lot about this early on. Um, whereas first, EP Energy, um, in middle of March, it terminated its uh, plan with Apollo, which is the sponsor of the, uh, the, the company. The plan was originally a new – they had a new money component to it, and um, all the parties walked away, um, presumably because of the crash in, um, in, in oil prices. More recently, we've seen Approach Resources uh, try and um, enforce an asset purchase agreement that they had with uh, – Alpine uh, it was an hundred and ninety two and a half million dollar asset purchase agreement and the first uh, day of, um, of that trial to, uh, seeking to enforce was was April 29th uh, so what's what's going on um, here is aside from you know parties looking to uh, to walk away from from some of their previous agreements given um the collapse in oil prices. Uh, you've seen this out of court as well with uh, borrowing bases being redetermined uh, lower. There's a semi-annual redetermination period that banks, um, as lenders under RBL agreements, uh, they uh, they have every April and October, where it just ended um, the, uh, the April one, um, of course. And what we see is, really cuts across the board, but uh, for stress companies, we've seen much sharper cuts. Uh, For instance, Oasis Petroleum received a 50% um, decline in their um, in, in their borrowing base uh, on April twenty fourth, uh, it said that they, they said that they entered into a fourth amendment to their credit agreement, which reduced the borrowing base from one point three billion to six hundred and twenty five million, and then reduced commitments from one point one billion to six hundred and twenty five million. And why those numbers are important? As of March thirty first, Oasis said that it had five hundred twenty two million of borrowings and eighteen point nine million of outstanding letters of credit. So really, what the banks did, is they took um, that barring base down to a level that um, really just doesn't allow Oasis to borrow anything, you know much of anything, anything else. Um, lenders uh, for Chaparral Energy, uh, this was uh, last month also. Um, Chaparral is an EMP focused um, EMP focused in the stack. What happened there was the lenders reduce his borrowing base below the uh, amount that was outstanding at the time. Uh, Chaparral, they had filed an AK that day saying that um, as a result of their borrowing-based redetermination, there would be a $90 million. um, After drawing $90 million, um, they had actually had a borrowing-based deficiency uh, that was created after the determination, which was in the amount of $75 million. And um, as a result, they would have to... um, uh, Solve that uh, deficiency with six equal monthly installments. The first of which was uh, was on May second, and you know we'll see what happens with uh, with future installments. They actually report um, results this week, so we'll hear a little bit uh, more about them. So what does this all mean? Um, we're in bankruptcy. Companies um, trying to get out of prior agreements pre petition. You're seeing stress companies uh, receive less uh, less cash. So what that means for companies when they have to file for bankruptcy, they have to live in a world really without um, new money uh, or, you know, not all of them uh, for sure. But um, so far, the ones that that have filed uh, recently, that's that's what we've seen. So, you know, one in particular, Whiting Petroleum, which filed for bankruptcy on April 1st, they reached an agreement with uh, the prepetition petition note holders and equity holders, uh, or, or they reached agreement with prepetition petition note holders on a plan that would give um, equity to the note holders and, um, and to, uh, to some to equity as well. 97% of the post-petition equity going to note holders, 3% uh, to equity holders, plus some warrants going to them as well. But notably, the, the agreement um, was not reached with um, the pre-petition RBL uh, lenders, and um, the debtors actually didn't file, um, you know, the, the, the first uh, cash collateral motion until um, uh, and, until during the, the first day hearings. They didn't even have that ready to go immediately and have subsequently um, had to rely on a series of short-term uh, extensions, though the, the company is hopeful that um, they're able to um, get final approval of one Shortly, but if we look at um, what's what's there and um, what they filed and what they disclosed, the debtors had six hundred twenty-six million of cash. A petition, again, uh, no new money coming in in the form of either a dip or the plan. Uh, you know, nor did the plan include any sort of new money component either from a rights offering, which prior plans in other debtors like EP Energy, you know, for instance, did. Uh, so the company is really relying on uh, on their current cash and what's going on with that cash. So the first two week, um, the, the debtors filed the two week um, initial two week uh, cash collateral um, uh, motion, and it showed that the first two weeks uh, the company would debtors would burn 190 million of cash flow. Uh, for the next two-week period, it would be a, a little bit less—eight uh, and a half million um, of cash only. Uh, but that only takes us through April. Uh, later, the debtors filed another interim budget, which uh, for the month of May they expect to burn um, eighty million of of cash. Why that's going on is because of CapEx um, companies like um, uh, E.M.P.s. They rely on continually spending money in order to replenish. Uh, reserves and, and replenish um, production and wells that have natural decline rates and in order to maintain production or grow production production you have to continually spend so given the speed that the company filed for bankruptcy it was probably still locked up in in certain agreements are still in the in the process of completing and drilling certain wells and as a result April and may um, you had significant capital spending that's um, that's resulting in in cash out Flows. The debtors also uh, had to uh, or monetized um, some hedge agreements as well, which, you know, certain. EMPs that have not um, filed for bankruptcy are relying on to generate cash given the low uh, oil price environment. The debtors here, though, Whiting um, had to rely on um, monetizing those, uh, those hedge agreements to, to raise cash given um, they don't really have any other sources of, of cash other than what's on the books right now. So that's resulted in a significant cash outburn during the first um, two months of the case. Now going forward, um, it's sort of a tale of you know two debtors here because going forward, what happens is once these plan, once um, their drilling plans are done, then they have to uh, live in this new world, which uh, for waiting is not um, you know not any new cash coming in, so. As a result, they're going to cut back capex significantly, which is going to result in um, significant declines in in production. Uh, so, when the company filed for bankruptcy, they uh, released a presentation, uh, the cleansing material, where uh, the company actually the debtors expect to generate uh, unlevered uh, free cash flow. In uh, each of their projection years through 2025, uh, rising from 116 million in 2020 to um, 121 million in 2025, peaking um, at 181 million in, in 2024. Um, of course, that assumes a rise in, in oil prices, but even in 2020, where they expect to generate um, some cash, they have a more, I guess, current. Um, Oil price of twenty seven fifty three a barrel that they're assuming, uh, but what does that do for production? Uh, production. The company expects to decline to sixty two thousand barrels of oil a day by twenty twenty five, and that's down from one hundred and twenty five thousand barrels of oil a day in twenty nineteen and one hundred eleven thousand in uh, twenty twenty. So significant declines in in production. So that's really what happens here. For for oil companies, and that's the environment that they're in right now. When no new cash is coming in the door, initially, um, in the case of waiting, you burn some of that cash uh, because you have to finish off um, you know some of the plans that you had before, given that it hit them so quickly. But then, longer term, they have to adjust to um, to limited cash flow by really cutting um, cutting. Production or cutting capex, which leads to lower production going forward. So we'll see what um, what that does to enterprise value uh, going forward. You know when um, the company emerges, but but certainly a significant um, cut to the size of, of the um, uh, of the company as a result of not much cash or, or no cash um, coming in. Um, so, Sean, you know, with, with that, um, and I know you've looked at a number you know, of other industries as well, if you wanted to you know, take us through uh, some other things that you're seeing too.
4: Sure. Sticking with energy broadly, I think coal producer Murray Energy is a good example of the range of actions that a debtor can take to preserve and augment liquidity. Actually, backing up for just a second, EP Energy, uh, as, you, as you noted had a, a confirmed plan that ultimately didn't close and sent the debtors back to the drawing board. So that's a, a great example of sort of the the garden variety operational fix to look um, for contracts, uh, uneconomic contracts from the debtor's perspective to reject under the bankruptcy code. And since their their plan didn't go through, we've seen a, a trickle of um, contract rejection motions from EP Energy. So that's that's sort of a a standard thing you can do to try to preserve, um, some liquidity anyway, back to Murray energy, the, uh, I mean, coal producers generally, even prior to the, uh, the coronavirus pandemic have been suffering from a number of, um, demand issues. Uh, you know, people love to point to the weather Uh, For coal, warm winters are are not great for demand. Uh, That's been exacerbated by competition from natural gas. As long as natural gas is is cheap, that's not great for coal. Um, The debtors have also talked a little bit about uh, increasing renewables coming online. And then beyond that, the coronavirus pandemic um, created additional declines in demand um, from various export markets and then in the US um, and the uh, so the, the debtors, I want to say in maybe February March, this this started to come out a little bit more in their filings. Uh, they've talked about doing everything from adjusting operations, idling a mine, uh, reducing executive salaries, and if you cross-reference that point with, a standing motion recently filed by the UCC. Um, you'll see that the certain of the the debtor's executive salaries may have been a, a higher cash component than um, comparable. So you can see how that would help. Um, debtors also furloughed employees, uh, prohibited expenditures without certain additional approval. Um, they, the Debtors in a very recent filing have said they're, quote, attempting to renegotiate already favorable vendor settlements. So, you know, maybe stretch your payables out a little bit. And what's, what's interesting, what I'll spend a minute on, is the debtors have also obtained a little extra relief um, on certain legacy liability issues to the tune of approximately, they say, $8 million dollars Per month. Uh, So, a fairly common fact pattern generally in in recent coal cases for debtors to pursue uh, an asset sale to say the only buyer we have will not assume these legacy liabilities, so we need to use the relevant provisions of the the code, sections 1113 and 1114, to reject collective bargaining agreements that that call for uh, pension payments and then to also cut other. Retiree benefits. So what's what's interesting for Murray? Sort of two points. One, they have been able to uh, point to the bipartisan American Miners Act of 2019, a piece of legislation passed in December 2019, and as the debtors have have worded it, um, and, and caught a little bit of flack from various parties. Uh, this you know this um, wonderful new legislation. Which has provided additional sources of funding for certain benefit plans. Um, you know, this uh, this new source of funding is is like a backstop. So, uh, you know, no harm, no foul. The debtors have will say they, you know, oh, we've satisfied the standard to cut these. But on top of that, no one's harmed because of this. You know, this um, additional source of funding. So it's. Um, maybe a, a little different play on, on the idea of, of leveraging others' balance sheets. Um, and, and so the debtors eventually filed three motions that were legacy liability related. And one, and this, this was sort of the interesting point, is they sought interim relief to transition over benefits from one of their plans to uh, a United Mine Workers of America um, union benefit fund. So the so, uh, again, the debtors said they, – they talked about liquidity, I want to say, on a daily basis. Oh, if we're able to, to you know, shift these obligations, we'll save X hundred thousands of, of dollars per day, um, which was a, a pretty meaningful number. And then the debtors also were able to uh, squeeze out a little additional liquidity uh, from getting part of a cash collateralized letter of credit back through a settlement with another um, union benefit plan. And, and this is interesting because it sort of relies on the Miners Act for the same idea that, hey, you know, it's, it's no harm, no foul, um, as long as we've satisfied the legal standard to be able to do this. Uh, well, actually, in, in this case, they just sought sort of a, a bilateral or a, a tri-party settlement. But the idea that uh, the retirees won't be harmed, their, their benefits are fine, Um, arguably, you know, the, the plan here that settled with, with Murray, um, had a pretty strong claim to be able to take the entire letter of credit. But, um, when you're, you know, when benefits are intact, maybe there's a a little bit more room to negotiate. Uh, And the the debtors also dangled the carrot that they would help the plan, um, pursue another, former operator of certain mines for liability. So just the point, you know, turning over rocks wherever you can and, and thinking about leverage all the time.
3: Great, and we'll, uh, we'll see how many more rocks uh, they have or uh, for other industries that are looking for cash, how many rocks that are out there. Um, so, Sean, I really appreciate it. Uh, I, I look forward to next week uh, when you're back with your regular segment. I know our listeners uh, do as well. Uh, thanks for joining me, though, here today. And, uh, <laughs> you know, um, New York, back to you.
1: Thanks, everyone. And thank you for listening to this Rear Weekly Review. As always, find all of our podcasts on the site's media page, iTunes, or SoundCloud. As always, we hope you and your families are healthy and safe, and we wish all the mothers out there a happy Mother's Day. See you next weekend.